0: We are in the midst of a three-week series, begun last week, ending next week, the title of which is on the screen, Grace-Centered Living. And that's because we are in between major sections of the book of Ephesians, through which we've been going for a few months, and Then we've had some holidays intervene. We're going to be gone one week in a few weeks. We're going to have another guest speaker, Father's Day. We're going to have our pastors and training guys preach for three weeks. So we will get to the second major section of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, on July the 24th, so two months from now. And as part of this interlude, I wanted to do this three-week mini-series called Grace Centered Living. I'll remind you as to why my heart has been burdened to teach on that theme as I introduce today's message. We have arrived at and survived through the end of the world weekend. Harold Camping of Family Life Radio, or excuse me, Family Radio, not to be confused with Family Life Radio. Actually, Family Life Radio is pretty good. Family Radio is Camping's thing and has been his thing for several decades. He's had a a Bible in quotes answer program. On there for those many decades, but he had predicted yesterday as the end And he'd done so based completely on unfounded calculations using numbers found nowhere, but in camping's troubled mind And it happens that today we scheduled the beginning of a new eight-week series during our next hour The 11 o'clock hour that deals with what the bible does indeed teach about end-time issues So I can talk more about that and camping at that time But for now, what I said earlier is the case that the scheduling of our series had nothing to do with Camping's prediction. I didn't even know about it until we had already set our 2011 uh, calendar. But I bring that up again because I actually went through a phase of my life when I sort of predicted the end as well. When I was in high school, the Pentecostal church that my uncle pastored after my dad died, that church taught on end times issues very often. So much so, in fact, and with such great intensity and effect that I was absolutely convinced in high school that the Lord was returning quite soon. Now, how did that affect my my everyday life? Well, one way that it affected me was it gave me a somewhat spiritual reason to blow off the stuff I didn't want to do anyway, like schoolwork? It's a true story. Actually, at one point, I was called into the high school counselor's office at the Christian school that I attended. And Mrs. Hage said, Kenny, we're convinced you can do better work. And I said to her, You know, I really don't think it matters much because I'm convinced the Lord's going to return before graduation. And she said at that time, rightly, even if that were true, I should do my best for the Lord that I would soon meet. But that all had little effect on my academic career because, of course, the Lord's impending return was not the real reason for my irresponsibility. I just wasn't very motivated for schoolwork at the time. Now, kids, especially my own, don't try this at home, what your pastor just said, My carefree, kind of happy-go-lucky attitude, though, was in stark contrast to some of my classmates who took their homework and, in fact, every aspect of their lives extremely, extremely seriously. I can recall many times coming into class my junior year when I sat sat next to a gal who was one of those really serious types. And I would sometimes come in, sit at my desk, look over at her, and her hands had a death grip on a book or a paper. She tried to cram in just a little bit more information. Her hands would be trembling. In fact, this girl was a nervous wreck all the time. When we would have to pass papers back and forth, I'd sometimes make contact with her hand. It was always ice cold. I remember having conversations with her about why she was always so nervous. and She wanted to know why I was always so calm. Well, what was going on with me was no great mystery. I was pretty much just an irresponsible teen. But she had something much deeper going on. You see, she could not make a mistake on anything. Her grades were perfect, Literally. Her conduct was perfect, literally, at least as far as we could all see. And she lived every day with the pressure of having perfect grades and perfect behavior. Now, I know that she was never taught this directly, but most of us know that what we do is more caught than it is taught, isn't it? And she had caught the idea that her worth, including her worth to God, was based upon her performance. She was to be our valedictorian. But for reasons to this day I'm not completely clear on, she ended up not even marching with our graduating class because what I heard was she had not completed a typing class the last semester of school because she had broken her arm. And so for all that work, she didn't even graduate on time, let alone be the valedictorian. And she cracked under the pressure. And now her grades were not perfect and her behavior became far from perfect as well. And I've not heard from or about her for many years. But the last time I did hear, she made no pretense of a relationship with the Lord. She had a best friend in high school as well. This best friend had a similar approach. Though her grades were not as stellar, she prided herself on dotting every behavioral I, crossing every legalistic T. And she, too, cracked under the pressure and today wants nothing to do with God. Now, as we began this mini-series on grace-centered living last week, I said that I have sometimes been surprised to find how many people suffer from a false view of themselves and of God and of sin and of forgiveness. Over the years, I've met many people who have caught the false notion that their worth to God is based on how good they are, is based upon how well they perform. And that false notion... Has a number of devastating results. As I was researching this, I came across the testimony of a man who was raised in that sort of performance environment. He was homeschooled using the Bill Gothard Advanced Training Institute materials. Now, this man's problems are not because he was homeschooled. Our family, in fact, did homeschooling for several years, and it's a good option for many of our families. But Bill Gothard, while having, of course, some good things in his materials, is overall a graceless, legalistic approach to Christian living that I would not recommend to you. If you don't know who Bill Gothard is, then be thankful. But listen to this as I read this man who was reared in Gothardian legalism. I made up Gothardian. Listen as to how that affected his life. He says, first and foremost, I was prideful and arrogant in my attitude about people around me in and out of the church. I followed the rules and they didn't. So obviously, I was a better Christian. As such, I didn't associate with them. Secondly, I developed an incredible ability to lie and deceive others about who I was. I knew I wasn't perfect on the inside, but it wouldn't matter as much if people, including my parents, didn't know. Some of my offenses, including cheating in school and watching things on TV, my parents didn't approve of. Still today, I have a strong tendency to cover up failures and avoid transparency, even within my own family. And a third personality flaw also continues to be a struggle to this day. I developed, he says, a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. The best way I can describe it was a constant overwhelming fear of messing up. Whether it be forgetting to pray before I ate or accidentally offending someone. I remember nights where I would spend 30 minutes doing something as simple as locking the doors before I went to bed because I was afraid I wasn't doing it right. Bizarre, he says, I know. And at the root of it all was this oppressive fear of failure. As an aside, my parents took me out of piano lessons at this point, thinking that the pressure of competition was the cause. We also burned a few piano pieces that I was playing at the time because we were taught certain music carried demonic powers. Now in my adulthood, this behavior still manifests itself as extreme perfectionism. And an inability to accept any kind of failure. My wife can attest to this. Schoolwork, for example, has been known to cause me great emotional stress as I simply cannot deal with the prospect of failure. He adds I always thought that my personal value was based on how well I followed the rules. And he says, to this day, I struggle with legalism and pride and dogmatism and feeling insecure in my relationship with God. And then he finally concludes the problem with believing. Now, hear this, friends, and hear this, parents. The problem with believing that you can keep sin out of your children's lives. Is the truth that sin already dwells within their hearts. And when a child doesn't experience personally the love of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the gospel. Then the rules mean nothing except captivity and oppression. I know personally of numerous young people that have completely abandoned their walk with Christ. Now some of you find it extremely hard. To ever admit that you've messed up. And as such, you almost never find yourself asking others to forgive you because that would mean you've sinned, which would mean your performance is not what it should be. And since you can't admit your sin, you sometimes lie to cover it up. Or when it's even hinted that you may have made a mistake, you begin to blame shift because it simply cannot be your fault. You look at others with disdain because a performance approach invariably, invariably leads to comparisons with others, and they don't measure up. You cannot handle criticism. Criticism suggests you messed up. Even the slightest criticism cannot be tolerated because of what it suggests about your performance. There are people all around you that you perceive to be irresponsible, lazy bums. Because they don't do all the things you do the way you do them. You've caught the false idea that if you do the right things, then things will go right. And the reality of your life has been different than that. They have not gone right in all respects. Because they never do in a fallen world. And God never said that they would. But you thought they would. And you're angry that they have not. Angry perhaps due to your own mistakes or, and sinful choices. But you can't deal with that because it would mean admission. And that's of course impossible. And so you're just angry and joyless. Or you're angry at the circumstances that have been thrust upon you through no fault of your own. Though deep down you do wonder if there was something you've done to deserve where you are. But it's not supposed to be this way in your mind. And you're angry at your circumstances. Hear this because you're angry at God for not keeping his end of the agreement. And the agreement was, if I do the right stuff, it'll go right. You thought. And you don't have that many friends. You have a lot of acquaintances, but not many, if any, friends. Now, some of you cannot relate at all to what I've been saying. And for some of you, that's because CBC is your only church experience, at least as an adult. And what I've described to you is completely opposite of what you've observed and learned, I hope and pray. You have not been taught and you have not caught the idea that your relationship with God is based on your performance so you can and do admit your sins and your shortcomings and you find that you're joyful in your walk with the Lord. And we thank God for that. And Others of you, though, can't relate to what I've been saying for a less noble reason. We just don't take sin seriously enough. And so the idea that you'd be bothered by it is foreign to your experience. Now hear this, friends. Our freedom in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ should indeed keep us from legalism. But it should keep us from licentiousness as well. It should motivate us to want to live for the Lord, but to live for the Lord, not for a list of particular rules. Now, did you hear what I read earlier? The gentleman wrote, the problem with believing you can keep sin out of of your children's lives is the truth that sin already dwells within their hearts. Let me modify that slightly. The problem with believing that our acceptance with God is based on our actions is that God also desires and deserves our hearts. We can do the right things and yet have hearts that are far from God. And that's why I wanted to engage in this three-week series, to make sure that all those who step foot in Community Baptist Church understand the grace of God and the motivating reason for which we seek to please Him and live for Him. And So let's pray and ask the Lord then to help us as we look at this most important issue. Our Father, we thank you for the grace of God that is found and is available in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the profound implications that flow from the cross of Christ and the good news of the gospel of Jesus. It means, among so many other things, that because Jesus has atoned, he has covered our sin in full, past, present, and future then we do not need to continue on the performance treadmill. We do not need to cover, yea, we cannot cover our sin. Only the blood of Jesus can, and thanks be to God, he has. But Lord, we must appropriate that. We must grasp that. We must apply that every moment of every day. And so we ask you to help us today as last week And next week, as we look at this important issue of grace-centered living, help us, Lord, to see the profound implications of what it means to be in the family of God, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And what it means to be accepted by you only because of the beloved Son of God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, last week we saw that we have to recognize that the root of our struggles is, first of all, an inside job. The very first point in last week's message was we have to recognize the root, and the root is a heart problem, an internal problem. And you all know where that heart problem began in this narrative of Scripture. Going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible's story, God creates the first man and the woman. He puts them in a perfect garden paradise. He gives them but one prohibition. They violate that prohibition. And sin enters God's otherwise good good world. The entrance of sin into God's good world did not result in a lack of worship. The entrance of sin did not result in a lack of worship. It resulted in... In different objects of worship. People were made by God to worship. They were made by God to worship Him. Now having sinned, they will continue to worship, but they will now manufacture different objects of that worship. And thus, from that point on, into the progeny of the human race, the human heart is ruled by what we saw last week the Bible calls idols. Idols, then, false gods. Someone or something other than the true and living God rule the sinful heart. And these idolatries, plural, are generated both from within and they are insinuated from outside of us. The reason that I've had you turn to 1 John chapter 5 It's because this small letter comprised of just five chapters concludes beginning in verse 13. And in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, John gives the reason for which he has written the previous four and a half chapters. And he says, I have written these things to you who believe on the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. This is the reason I've written this letter, says John. He then gives some concluding remarks from verses 14 down to verse 20. And then you have this one verse at the very end that simply says this. Verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Seems like a weird way to end the letter. And it seems like a weird way to end the letter because... Of the 105 verses that comprise those five chapters, the words idol and idolatry do not appear at all. So here's a guy who has written, he says for the purpose, chapter 5 and verse 13, of making sure that we know that we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He's given a number of bases for that confidence in the four and a half chapters that precede. The words idol, idolatry, aren't used at all, concludes this way. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So what is up with that? Well, a closer examination of what John has written about our relationship with God reveals that, in fact, his letter is all about worship. It's all about where our devotion and our priorities lay. In fact, one author says it this way John's last line that we just read, chapter 5 and verse 21, leaves us with the most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? It's a question bearing on the immediate motivation for one's behavior, thoughts, and feelings. In the Bible's conceptualization, the motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or a substitute? And the undesirable answers to this question, answers which inform our understanding of the idolatry we're to to avoid, are most graphically presented throughout the letter of 1 John. Famously, they're presented in 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 and 16. Just turn back a few pages. 1 John 2 and verse 15. The word idol is not used in the letter until the very last verse. The word idolatry is not used. But here's what is said. Verse 15 of chapter 2, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone... Notice, loves the world. The love of the Father is not in him. And notice the language of verse 16. Because everything in the world, cravings and lusts and boasting, come not from the Father, but from the world. You see, this entire letter is about what or who we love. It's about what or who we crave. What or whom we lust after, intensely desire. What it is we boast about. And it says in verse 16 that all of these are from the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, as the King James calls it. And then it speaks of the evil one as being a motivator as well. For the things that we make idols of in our lives. And all three of these motivations conspire to move us to idolatry. The flesh. Or the cravings of sinful man as verse 16 calls it. That's our self-centeredness. The the wants, the hopes, the fears, the expectations. The so-called needs that crowd our hearts. And then there is the world itself outside of us. It invites and it models and it reinforces and it, content, it it conditions us and teaches us lies about what's important and what we ought to prioritize and go after. And then the devil, spoken of specifically in chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. The devil stands as a demonic lord over as a ruler over the kingdom of our internal flesh, our sinful desires, and the world that invites us. The flesh and the world and the devil. And of those three, the flesh, the sinful nature, is most foundational. Why? Because apart from my sinful nature that the Bible sometimes refers to as the flesh, not the physical body, but the flesh, apart from that, the world's allurements cannot entice me. But it's because I want those things and I desire those things that the world's entrapments have effect upon me. That's why Jesus said elsewhere, it's not what goes into a man, but what comes out of a man that defiles him. And because this issue then of idolatry, is the motivating issue for all that we say and all that we do, and it is an inside heart issue, it's about what we love and what we desire intensely, then that idol can be anyone or anything. Last week I asked you the question. What thing or what person, if you lost it or them, would cause you to lose your purpose for living. And whatever that thing or that person or persons are, that is your idol. Or what thing do you fear to lose the most? Author Tim Keller, in his helpful book, The Gospel in Life, gives a long list of potential idols that our hearts can manufacture because of things that we believe we cannot live without, things or persons other than God. probably will not read the entire list, but let me give you a sampling so you get the idea. If you say, if not with your lips, with your heart and in your thoughts, if you say things like, life only has meaning or I only have worth, If I have power and influence over others, then power has become an idol for you. If you say life only has meaning or I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by, fill in the blank, some person, my spouse, my children, my boss, whatever it is, then you have approval idolatry. Or if you say life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasurable experience, a particular quality of life, then you've made an idol out of comfort. If you say life has only has meaning or I only have worth, if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of fill in the blank, then you've got control idolatry. And he goes on to give a list of helping idolatry. And dependence idolatry and independence idolatry and work and achievement and materialism and religion idolatry, irreligion idolatry, racial cultural idolatry, family and relationship idolatry, suffering, ideology, image, and on it goes. He helpfully points out that each of these is going to affect our attitudes in the way we look at others and the way we look at life. Because what controls us is what is in our hearts. And what is in our hearts is either complete devotion to the true and living God or to one of the idols that we have manufactured. Now, are you willing to accept that? It is what God teaches. Are you willing to accept that and are you willing to see that in your own life? We have an outline inserted in your program. And I ask that question as to whether you're willing to see that. Rather than covering it, you're willing to face it. Because in the first point in your outline, I say this. Grace causes us to see our problems clearly. Grace causes us to see our problems clearly. In contrast to all that I said before about the blame shifting and the lying and the covering, grace causes us to see ourselves, to see the root of our problem, and to see it clearly. No man or woman comes into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ unless he or she first sees their problem clearly. And the grace of God is what opens their eyes to see it. And to receive it and say, yes, that is me. Yes, that's what I'm like. There's nothing that I can do as good as I think I am. There is nothing that I can do to recommend myself to God. Only what He has done for me will avail to cover my sin. That's why the Bible says this. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Conversely, only the one who has the Spirit accepts, and that word accept is sometimes translated receives or welcomes the things that come from God. Only the man or woman on whom the Spirit of God has moved on his or her heart, is now willing to say, Yea, Lord, yes, Lord, to what he says in his word by the Spirit of God is true of me, is true of us. And outside of the move of the Spirit of God, we will continue to blame shift, continue to try to cover, continue to pursue our idols and deny even that they exist. If you have come to God through Jesus Christ, it began by the Spirit of God moving on you so that you welcomed, received, accepted what you previously denied. It's the grace of God that causes us to see our problems clearly. The Bible says elsewhere, Of a group of Christians in a particular town called Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. When the good news of Jesus, it says, came to you. It came not simply with words. But also with power. With the Holy Spirit. And with deep conviction. Our tendency, our sinful tendency. Is to resist seeing ourselves for who we are. The Holy Spirit opens The eyes of our heart so that we see and accept what we are before God. No more excuses. No more blame shifting. And that happens initially when we come to God. When we hear the good news of the gospel and our hearts cry out for it and we embrace it as what we need. But it also happens continually then. As we grow in our walk with God. Progress in growing in grace is only made as we see ourselves daily as for who we truly are. As we cease trying to cover our sin ourselves. And what we should do is rejoice. When a God who loves us in his grace points out to us through his word the sin that we still struggle with. Instead of denying it, instead of saying, no, that's not me. No, I don't do that. No, there's some excuse for me. Instead of doing that, we say, thank you, Lord, for pointing that out in me. Now, why? Because to the extent that I harbor idols, I fail to be like Jesus. And the goal of the believer is to be like Jesus. And the only way I can be like Jesus is for the idols of my heart to be dethroned one at a time. Grace causes us to see our problems clearly. But secondly, in your outline, grace causes us to see those problems deeply. Not just in general. Yes, I clearly see that there's a problem in general. But God wants those idols dethroned to the extent that He is going to have us see those problems in a very deep and specific way. That's why He's given us His Word. I'm going to show you a passage in the Bible about the Bible that speaks to the Bible's penetrating analysis of our hearts. But before I do, Let me just say this, friends, if you are not regularly in God's Word, you'll think you're okay. The more you are in the standard of God's Word, the more you see how far far you fall short. The man or woman who is not regularly in the Word of God will feel just fine about where they are. But the more I read it, and the more I see God's holy character, The more I see his love for me, the more I see how I continue to fall short. And there are still idols in my heart that need to be dethroned. What does the Bible say about itself? The word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, The Word of God judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Word of God, because it is from an omniscient God who knows all that we need. The Creator God who made us as we are and knows all of our failings and our sin. The Word of God being His then is able to do this amazing thing of having x-ray vision as it were to look at me and to look at you and to point out the idols of our hearts in very specific fashion. Taking the principles of that word, you can then make application, and you and I must make application of it, to see what idols still rule and vie for supremacy in our hearts. I have a list of 35 x-ray questions given by an author that some of you may be familiar with, David Paulison. And he wrote a book, the title of which is Seeing with New Eyes. As the name suggests, it's how the Spirit of God and the Word of God help us to see ourselves, to see God, and to see His world through new lenses. And in one of the chapters in that book, he has 35 x-ray questions for us to ask ourselves regularly. Now, I'm not going to go through all 35 of them. As a matter of fact, we will have all 35 of them for you at the information center next week. So you don't even need to write any of these down unless you want to. But I want to go through a few of them with you. Ask ourselves regularly, says Paulison, what do you love? Or what do you want and desire and crave and lust and wish for? What do you seek, aim for, and pursue? On where do you bank your hopes for the future? What do you fear? What do you fear the most? What do you not want to happen? What do you tend to worry about? What are your plans, agendas, strategies, and intentions designed to accomplish? What makes you tick? He says, what sun does your planet revolve around? What or whom do you trust? Whose performance matters? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? Whom must you please? Whose opinion of you counts the most? On your deathbed, what would sum up your life as worthwhile? What gives your life meaning? Just three more. What do you pray for? What do you talk about? Where do you find your identity? Those are penetrating questions that come to us from principles given in the all-penetrating Word of God. And they help us to use the principles of the Word of God so that God in His grace who gave that Word and gives us His Spirit can cause us to see our problems, yes, clearly, but secondly, also deeply. And then thirdly, grace causes us to see our problems Sadly, it's the best I could come up with. But what I mean is, it does cut when I'm convicted by the Word of God and its principles to see the idols that still rule my heart. It hurts. I should be saddened. I should be sorrowful. Because my love that should belong to the God who made me and the Redeemer who bought me has been given to someone or something else. But those of us who have the Spirit of God look into the Word of God and we see ourselves in its mirror and we often don't like what we see. We are sorrowful as a result. The Bible tells us that the grace of God teaches us. To say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and for us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. The grace of God given in the word of God and through the spirit of God operates that way. Then, So that I see myself for the purpose of putting away all that is ungodly and embracing that which is godly. And when I see that I fall short of that and I do fall short of it and so do you. I should be saddened. How do I know you fall short of it? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But having seen my sin, having seen my idolatry, having had it revealed to me by a gracious God who wants to see me move forward in my walk with Him, having had it shown to me, painful though it be, I now want to rid myself of it. How does that happen? That verse on the screen says, if we say we have no sin, we lie. The truth is not in us. But most of you are familiar with the very next verse famously. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he is just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Hear this. The difference between a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and an unbeliever, one who does not follow Jesus, the difference between those two people is not that one sins and the other does not. That's not the difference. (laughs) They both sin. The difference is their reaction to it. And the believer is saddened by it is sorrowful for it because he has or she has a new allegiance and she is convicted when she follows someone or something other than the Creator and Redeemer that we claim. I have for you the take-home truth then, that lasting change comes to us only when we see ourselves the way God sees us. Your relationship with God is not based on your performance. It's based on His performance. It's based upon not what you have done, but what Jesus has done for you. And you are in an ongoing battle, as am I, to dethrone the idols of your heart. But a gracious God has given us the means by which that happens. The Word and the Spirit. But you didn't come to Christ... By deceiving yourself about who you are. When you initially came to Christ, you had to be honest and upfront about your need and about the depth of your own sin and your need for Him as the Savior. And only He could cover your sin, past, present, and future, right? And you can only grow in Him as you continue to face your sin honestly. And it's a gracious act of a loving God that He shows us who we are. And he gives us the tools to remedy the idols of our hearts. Now for those of you that have never come to Jesus Christ. The moment of honesty for you is right now. For you to be honest about where you are as it relates to the God who made you. Jesus Christ poured out his life for you. And he poured out his life for you because there is nothing that you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. If there were anything you could do to make yourself acceptable to God, then he would not have had to come and suffer and die the most cruel form of punishment imaginable. But he did, and he did so for you. Now we're going to bow our heads in just a moment. Each one of us, whether we've come to Christ initially or not, need to avail ourselves of the opportunity to be honest about the idols of our hearts. But those of you that have never come to him to this point, take this opportunity to embrace the gift of eternal life that he offers in Jesus. And for you to reject that by saying, I don't need that, is to say to God the Son, you wasted your time in what you did 2,000 years ago. Thanks, but no thanks. And God does not take kindly to people rejecting what he has offered to them freely. I urge you to trust Christ as Savior. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for the x-ray vision that we find in the word of God. It has that ability inherent within it because of what it is. It is your word. It is the revelation, the making known of the true and living God, the one who has made us and who has made all things and who knows our hearts and knows what we need. And so we thank you for the word of God and we thank you for the spirit of God and these as gracious gifts from a loving God to show us our need and to give us the message that supplies our need in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the good news of the gospel that has Started the process of dethroning the idols of our hearts. But, oh, Lord, prone to wander is my heart. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I pray that that's the heart's desire of each of your children on this worship day morning. And I pray for any who have not come to you prior to coming into this room, that they are seeing that they have been trying to recommend themselves to you by their own efforts, that they have been on the performance treadmill, and that nothing other than the perfection of Jesus Christ can make us acceptable before a holy God. I pray that your spirit is moving on their heart, drawing them out of the world and to yourself so that they are now embracing what they once rejected and that they will glorify you with their lips and with their lives. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.